so much happening around JMU sports right now, but obviously big news this week, uh, extremely disappointing news for the Dukes finding out their bid, their um, request for a waiver to become immediately bowl eligible or directly bowl eligible um, and have the, uh, the off season or the postseason opportunities they expected this season was denied by the NCAA um, with a vote of a D1 council, which I, I guess I'm understanding is a just the, that vote was simply affirming an earlier decision, which was part of the process. I didn't necessarily have a firm grasp on um, going into this week. First off, Noah, just how surprised by this news were you at this point? Not really that surprised. I knew going into this week that, you know, they have a decision at some point, and we got it, you know, Wednesday night, Thursday morning. And, you know, I thought it was a 50-50 shot at this point, and, uh, you know. They affirmed something that I guess they already discussed, you know, the board of directors had discussed, you know, earlier this month, and then the D1 council has basically had the last stamp of approval on, you know, basically saying, in essence, everybody else had to wait, so you got to wait. Yeah. Um, you're saying you're not surprised at this point. Has your thoughts, I know personally my thoughts on what was going to happen were slowly changing and trending more this direction probably in the last three weeks to a month. Are you Were you in the same situation as me just as far as like where you thought like things were going? Not really because, you know, when you look at the NCAA, it's not a very, you know – not an organization that likes to change, right? And then always a big change that's going on in the NCAA right now. And, you know, it's something that I was kind of surprised even got, you know, allowed and we've seen what happened. But it's, you know, I think the more research you do into it, the more likely it looked like it was going to be a no. Um, you know, I think that from the moment they submitted the waiver, you know, earlier this year, I thought it was going to be, you know, a, not a long shot, but 50-50. I think, you know, that's what, you know, I think JMU went into it. They thought they had a good case. Um, which they did. I mean, you know, eight and three. They've got the infrastructure in place because eight and three on the football field is only a very small portion of what the actual waiver was for. Um, what they, I guess, used as their, uh, you know, defense basically to here's the reason why that they should get it approved. Um, everything else they have in place. You know, I talked to Jeff Bourne before he went to Ohio State for the women's tournament, and he, you know, mentioned the amount of, you know, I was there talking about women's sports and you know the infrastructure they put in that, but he was very adamant to talk about the rest of the department the men's sports, how, how they staff it. It's different than other schools where every every sport's got its own athletic trainer, its own strength and conditioning coach. There's nutritionists available for the entire department, not just football. So, you know, that always in it. And uh, But in the end, the NCAA decided to uphold its, you know, original ruling where basically said you went into it knowing it's to your process and you're going to finish it out. Yeah. My surprise probably comes from even going back to um, the November – announcement the november i guess 2021 announcement that they were moving to the sun belt they seem to just have this confidence uh insinuating that there's you know more or less a handshake agreement that like you know they would sit out they would they would go through the first year of the waiver process play the full schedule and then with the sun belts backing they were more than likely to get that waiver for the second year um and it does seem like the confidence level coming out of you know the administration and the mouthpieces from the athletic department probably got less and less incrementally until this month. They seem to be bracing JMU fans for the distinct possibility that it was going to be denied, which I'm guessing probably 
coincided a little bit with like the board's decision and then with some hope that this D1 council vote would go the other way. Yeah, you know, I don't I honestly don't think that Jamu knew what the result was going to be. You know, yeah. going back to 2021, I don't I don't know if I if I buy the fact that they thought it was basically a done deal because everyone I've talked to has said they went into this knowing it wasn't going to be a done deal. Um, obviously they were optimistic. You know, Cignetti was optimistic about it. I don't think he, you know, thought it was 100% done deal. Talked about, you know, made references hoping that it would go through, but it didn't and uh yeah it's kind of a tough process but they, they had some belts backing and um i think in the end it's not the end of the world yes they have yeah. to wait another year to get their you know fbs tv money since they're only getting another six hundred thousand this year from the deal um and it'll eventually keep going up to i think two million by 2027 i think you know the cfp mm-hmm. and all that stuff so that's the only part I think that that really hurts Jamie the most. I don't think the bowl because they can still get that. We can talk about it in a minute, yeah. but I think the money aspect of it probably is what you know is the gut punch to this athletic department. Yeah, um, you we can get to the bowl part of it right now. Um, you know, Kurt, Kurt Signetti though. I mean, you say like you know he didn't think it was a done deal. I mean, I don't think anybody thought it was a done deal at any point, but. Um, you know, he's Signetti was talking at the spring as though, I mean, I think he made multiple references to like, we're eligible this year. We can do this this year. We couldn't do this last year. We can do it this year. Um, so I think like he was, you know, pretty confident, um, in what was going to happen. Although, you know, sometimes the coaches, especially when they're locked into spring practice, things like that aren't necessarily, um, having a direct line into what's happening in meetings, you know, halfway across the country. Um, But I think, you know, they're pretty confident. How confident should they be now at this point that they can play in a bowl game this year where I'm sure, you know, probably most people listening to this have read most of the articles and everything on it at this point and understand that JMU, if they win six games, or more. Or more. At least six games. They will be in line ahead of five win teams if there aren't enough eligible teams to fill all the bowl slots. And, you know, I think you and I both, like, discussed this um, here in the last couple of days. How likely would it be that they can get to a bowl that way? Yeah, to, to give people kind of like a history lesson on this rule, it passed in, you know, 2015, and it's, you know, in the event that there's not enough six and six better or better teams to fill all 41 bowls, however many open spots there are, they go to the five and seven teams, rank them based on their academic progress, you know, report from the from the four-year span previous, and so it, it, talk, it brings a whole bunch of numbers and stuff. So it basically says, you know, which team is performing the best in the classroom and things like that, graduation rate, et cetera. And they, they see them like that. So then the, that's your list of alternates if there's an open spot. With this passing in 2015, there was three teams that got took advantage of it in 2015. Nebraska, Minnesota, San Jose State. 2016, there was two more. 2020 was just a COVID year. They, a lot of teams mm-hmm. got in because they just needed to fill spots. Yeah, 2021, they used, Rutgers got in because it's Texas A&M got COVID. And in 2022, Rice took advantage. But 2022, New Mexico State had a waiver from the NCAA. 
mm-hmm. be in front of the five and sevens because they couldn't play 12 games this past year with their game against San Jose State getting canceled because of a death in the program. So that is the spot that Jamie would have been sitting in if this happened a year ago where New Mexico State was. So two teams basically took advantage of it last year. Um, but there was a gap between 2021 and 2016 if you take out the COVID year of no five and seven teams getting yeah. in. So it is likely. Um, the last two years it's happened. The last three years really COVID, I guess we don't I Yeah, you can't really count. But you can't really count that. The last two years, three teams have taken advantage. Um, and overall, what is that? Five, eight teams have taken advantage since 2015 of this new rule. So it's a possibility. Um, I think at this point, if JMU just wins, if you see what happens. Yeah. There is a chance, though, that JMU could play in the Sunbelt Championship game. Has not been ruled out. Yeah. But also hasn't been ruled in. That's where things get interesting, and it will be very, very intriguing to see what the Sun Belt ends up doing with that. The Sun Belt's in a weird position where you know they were backing JMU for this waiver. I think mostly because like if you're a Sun Belt, you look at it, JMU's one of a handful of teams that it's reasonable to expect that this year could be the best team in the conference. And if you're the Sun Belt why you would want to have each one of your best teams or the teams that might have a chance to do something big for you. You would want them available to do that, to do that. And um, so the Sunbelt's in weird, kind of a weird position where, you know, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about sliding into a bowl game because there's not enough slots, which generally means going into like a, uh, you know, very low tier bowl. You know, Rice did last year went to a a, a minor bowl as a five team. as a five and seven team. They lost to a Southern Miss, but yeah. <laughs> um. So, but but did that tier of bowl that's you know Southern Miss was you know a mid middle of the pack Sun Belt team. Um. So that would be probably be about where JMU would be slated in most cases. What if JMU is eleven and one or twelve and zero or something and ranked reasonably high? Um. And they let them play in the Sun Belt Championship game, and they win the Sun Belt Championship. And they're getting into a bowl basically on a technicality. But would it be, is it at all possible that it's a major bowl game if they play that well and are the Sun Belt champions? I, I, I have no idea how this would work in that scenario. I don't know if the Sun Belt will, first of all, let them play in the title game because JMU was ranked. Five and zero. They could have said at that point this past season, mm-hmm. JMU is eligible for the championship because at the time they were what the third highest ranked group of five school. Yeah. And for those that don't know, to get into the rotating New Year's Six Bowl, you're the top, you're the highest ranked group of five champion. So you could be ranked twelfth. Like JMU could end the year ranked AP number twelve. If they can't play in the Sun Belt Championship game, they're not going to the. I think it's Sugar Bowl this year, mm-hmm. something like that. Anyway, so I don't know how that would work because. It's not a guarantee that that bowl spot would be there for them, so somebody would be taking a risk because yeah. you don't know till the end of the regular season how many of those spots are going to be open. So they would know, I guess, by the time the championship game is played. But you got to make that yeah. decision before you can't let Jamie mm-hmm. win. Like it would look bad if you had two East Division teams knowing that they were, they were like, if it goes this way, then Jamie's in. If not, then Coastal or whoever's in. So I don't think that would happen. But um, yeah, and you know, twelve and zero is. Kind of a steep, steep ask it is. with, with Jamie's schedule completely. this year is about a complete 180 mm-hmm. from what you looked last year with 
non-conference play, you know, at Utah State and against at Virginia, and then your two West Division teams are the two best teams. Yeah. I think two best teams in the conference, period. Yeah. Um, and that's that's part, you know, part of what I'm getting at is that if they play well with the schedule, they should get their, sort of their respect nationally um, with, you know, hypothetically – a win on the road against an ACC Virginia team, which um, is not a very good Virginia program right now. But those those Power Five wins carry weight, whether they should or not. Um, you go to play like a solid um, Utah State program that's been been good and been solid for a long time. You play them on the road, um, and then, like you said, you'd get. You also have UConn coming, which is was yeah, which is better game, yeah, better game than you thought, and you know potentially a, uh, you know potentially like a boost at the end of the year since that game's played in November, like where maybe people pay a little bit more attention because it's a non-conference game in November if if UConn turns out to be good, um, and you said like you said, um, wouldn't be surprising at all if either one of Troy or South Alabama spends time in the top twenty-five this year. Troy will probably be Troy, Troy will probably in. yeah Troy will probably be ranked when that game's played potentially um so you know all of that sets up for but maybe maybe one of the disappointing things about this is like the schedule is there for JMU to if they're successful be in a good spot you know it also the flip side of that is you know they could really struggle in the non-conference they could struggle against Troy and South Alabama and just be trying their damnedest to get the six wins um i think you know after winning eight last year and assuming they'd won nine or ten with a healthy quarterback people are you know thinking it's a done deal that they'll win six games this year maybe maybe that's too much of an assumption on our part to even start talking about winning six games i don't know but with the schedule if they take care of business and are a nine ten eleven win team they should be getting a lot of respect nationally i would think they could i mean it's hard to really judge this Jamie team off of last year's team. Based, mm-hmm. You can judge the defense on it for sure. I just think the offense is hard to judge. Um, it's a different quarterback, um, different receiving core. A lot of question marks right now going into mm-hmm. the fall. So it's hard to judge. But if, hypothetically speaking, that happens, it puts everyone in a tough spot. Um, but I'm not sure the Sun Belt would put them in the championship because they didn't put them in this past year. Yeah. And... They haven't made an official ruling on it. I've heard, you know, that they there's nothing definitive. Um, but if you look at what Kurt Signetti tweeted recently, basically saying they're going to have to make next year's party bigger than the past. So it tells me that they're thinking they may not be eligible for the championship game because yeah. of that. But and they might. I mean, that's up to the, the league. And yeah. NCAA has zero bearing on if the GMU gets to play in the Sun Belt title game. That's just the league basically holding itself – because of all the bowl tie-ins with the champion of that game mm-hmm. getting to play in a bigger bowl and things like that. so Yeah, yeah I mean, it put, the league has to make that decision, and they probably will want to make that decision with as much information as possible as to what the implications of JMU playing, potentially playing in a championship game, would be. Like, like I was saying before, the Sun Belt, really the next step that Sun Belt has to take is to get that, New Year's Day group of five bull spot. That that's the next step for the conference. And they kind of have to just play their cards right to make sure they have the best opportunity to do that. 
and an ineligible JMU team beating, say, a good Troy team, a ranked Troy team, potentially takes that away. On the flip side, if JMU could play in that game, then your best situation, you know, maybe JMU and Troy or JMU and South Alabama are both up there, and the winner of that game gets a boost from beating the other one, then maybe then maybe it would be best for the conference for JMU to be playing in that game. It's really hard to say at this point what actually does make sense for the Sun Belt. What did make sense for the Sun Belt was to back JMU in this waiver process so all teams were available and your best team, no matter what, is available. But that didn't happen. And, uh, you know, even Keith Gill, in his statement, I think, you know, kind of diplomatically expressed his disappointment in that uh, in that decision um, cause I mean, it goes back to what I was saying before. I think that if not the assumption, the hope was that having strong backing from your conference office was going to push this through. Yeah. I mean, if somebody did everything I think they could do, right. I mean, they gave them the games to make them have the opportunity to be eligible, get everything they need to do. Some of backing, I think weighed a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Like from, from people I've talked to, you know, the last two days, that without the Sun Belt, this wouldn't even been a thought. This yeah. this is not an even the NCAA kicks it back to them probably and says mm-hmm. denied. They waited out. You know the Sun Belt back and helped a lot. Keith Gill and you know student athletes from every school in the Sun Belt provided documentation in support of JMU and you know helping boost the case. So I think it helped. I don't think that they thought it was like a going back to like you know being a done deal or anything like that um but i think that that was their best case scenario was using the sunbelt as a boost and it, it worked in a way i mean it, yeah. it got the ncaa to look at jamie as a legitimate a legitimate question yeah and people ask about like what has possibly changed um over the course of the process um I think a notable thing is that like there's a new NCA president who I don't know how much direct impact he had on this particular thing, but just the direction of things have changed. Um, Whereas, you know, they used to hand out transfer waivers like to anybody who asked for one. They're not do technically you got a one year, you know, free pass, but for the second, you know, transfers, like that was always really actually a thing. They just decided to start enforcing the second year, the second time transfer situation. Um, with actual documentation and things. Um, so they are trying to rein in some of the wildness a little bit. And I think, I think, you know, another thing that's changed is conference USA has continued to backfill. They're adding programs that will ask for the same thing. If JMU gets this and would not have the same kind of case, but then the NCAA is put in that situation of whether they have to like tell those teams, no, open themselves up to um, to criticism, to anger, potentially, I don't know, litigation if you're Sam Houston or whoever and JMU gets it and you don't. like, I don't think it's any, that's something the NCAA had really any interest in dealing with is no matter how much it might have made sense from a JMU perspective, I don't think the NCAA had any interest in this point in dealing with other schools in a variety of situations, whether it's FCS to FBS, whether it's division two to division one, whether it's, you know, St. Thomas, you've mentioned in your article, they've already got theirs. They've already got their jump from D three to D one cut down. 
But then do they come back asking for more if, you know, JMU wins this? I think that's just a door that at this point the NCAA did not want to open. Yeah, you know, you know, St. Thomas is a great example because, yes, they got a waiver approved for this, but it was a rule change that happened later that year, right, mm-hmm. that allowed to any team to make the jump from D3 to D1 in five years if you meet the criteria. Um, and basically how that works is they were, it's supposed to be a 12-year process where you go from D3 to D2, spend time there, and then come to D1, spend four years, and then you're fully eligible for everything. Instead, they spent one year at Division Two, and then they're in the middle of their D1 transition. So the way to change this for JMU, it won't help them JMU at all, but this is a question that I really think I'm going to ask is, is JMU willing to back slash propose a rule change for teams to avoid this in the future? It's a question because that's what the NCAA said. They said they're not going to put a waiver out, but they're open to changing the rule, but it doesn't help anybody that's currently FBS, right? Mm -hmm. So, that's the question that comes in because a lot of Jamie fans are mad about the fact that this is basically a a spot where teams that are already FBS say, hey, we did this. We sat out two years. App State, Georgia Southern, look, say, look, we, we, we had to go through this tough luck. So does JMU take that same approach now that they will have to go through it? And will they not support a, a rule change? Or do they try to be the team that, you know, changes things and be the university that changes things and be a pioneer for, for the future Obviously, you know, it's a hard rule to, you know, you have to make criteria and things like that and have them meet it. But um, it's it's something I, I wonder because if that rule were to be changed before this, Jamie, you'd be all in favor. But after mm-hmm. it, I don't know if they'd be in favor. Based on the response with um, the CAA and their rule that outgoing teams that play in a championship, they were pushing for that rule to be changed even when it wasn't going to help JMU. Um I would think they'd probably have a similar response, you know, um, at least, you know, at least, you know, give lip service to we support this, you know, whether how actively they're pushed for it behind the scenes or anything, I don't know. But I think they would at least give lip service to supporting a real change. To me, it's it's never made sense to have a scenario where all this is happening after the team moved up. Why is this happening two years after JMU has been playing FBS games? Why isn't the process of transitioning happening in the years prior to actually moving up? Um, to me, like, you know, JMU's trying everything, – everything that JMU made in their case for this waiver could have been – that case could have been made for the five years leading up to this. JMU could have declared in you know 2015 or whatever, hey, when when the right FBS opening is there, we would like to move up. This is why we think we're capable. Let's start the transition process, and if we get an invitation, we want to move up. And I think that could be the case for like any school, like because that process should be something that's not just an opportunistic like spur of the moment type of thing, which I think some programs have kind of made that decision here in recent years, but why JMU did it the right way. They started making this process a decade ago. Why couldn't they have declared five years ago that yes, when the time comes, when the opportunity and the invitation is there, we're going to move up. Please start reviewing us right now. And if we are capable and give us the approval to do it when the invitation comes. And 
why is why is it that the process is like we're really going to start to transition after you've already moved? I don't I don't get that at all. Well, if you think about it, you need the invitation to first of all begin a transition, right? Mm-hmm. Unless you're Liberty, who they got a waiver to to independent, but they also have cash sitting wherever you want it. So kind of different, but. The whole point of a transition is to get your your program to full speed and getting it up. Jame, you did a lot of that, you know, for the whole athletic department in the years past. You, you touched mm-hmm. on, you know, they, they have the funding, they have the infrastructure in place. But it still doesn't change the fact that you got it. You're playing at, what, 63 scholarships or something like that in the FCS? Mm-hmm. And in the FCS, you can break scholarships up and do whatever you want with it. At the FBS, you can't. And you have a lot more scholarship players. So the transition year two years is meant to allow a team go from 63 scholarships to 85. Jamie last year wasn't playing 85 Mm -hmm. and it was obvious when injuries happened. Now they're going to be at 85. So they're almost like, you know, they could be the NCAA could point at Jamie and say, this is the exact way to move up. You're successful. year one. You're successful. year two. You're setting yourself up for the future. Cause I don't think even if teams are have the money to do it, just because you've got the money doesn't mean you're going to be good. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the reason why this is in place, and that's why you can't start really the process of transitioning to the FBS until you have everything else going. So, yeah, I see where you're, what you're saying, but at the same time, there's a whole lot of stuff you have to do to really get your team up because Sam Houston could have all the money in the world. I don't don't know they don't obviously you know i've heard stories of you know when jamie played there a couple years ago in the fcs playoffs the visiting locker room is a tent so there's that so that tells you the infrastructure is not in place but sam houston if jamie gets approved they try to get approved right but if it's even though it's not there it becomes really gray area of what sets up a team to only make a one-year move what do you say because you could say you need to have this much money or this or that or this you can check all the boxes and still not technically be up to speed. So I think the two years does that. It also reduces, you know, we've touched on teams jumping up to FBS really quick, having a transfer portal team play well, and then just be terrible after that. And so I think that's the case. And you also want to make it sustainable for the student-athlete experience, um, not just football, because a lot of teams could move football up. But I think the NCAA also wants it so it doesn't impact negatively yeah. your Olympic sports, your basketballs. Because most teams are going to take basketball and football seriously, but some universities might not care about women's golf or this or that. And and Jamie obviously does, but I think it's just, you know, they look at what's the most extreme scenario this could happen in, and would that be feasible? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of my point, though, too, about, like, begin the process five years ahead of time, is that then you are addressing those other sports. You're addressing the facilities. You're addressing everything and you've i don't know i just think feel like provisional approval could be possible before an invitation is there but you need the games to even be yeah. a provisional team you need fbs games you can't yeah. be an fcs team and get provisional fbs approval well, north dakota state another reason why okay how many teams does the ncaa actually want moving up to fbs i don't feel like there needs to be a whole lot more FBS teams. I feel like it should be a big deal. That's why the process to is make a whole this bunch jump. of hoops they jump yeah, through. Yeah, but I think that process could be done. I think it could just be completely done before you actually start playing at this level. 
you know, JMU got the games because they had a conference that wanted them. And so, like, you know, if other schools went through the process that JMU went through over the past 10 years, they would have gotten the invitation to a good conference that JMU did. I mean, if Kennesaw State in, you know, basically in Atlanta, a very desirable market, huge school, everything else, if they had gone through the same process JMU had went through to build this up, why wouldn't they be in the Sun Belt right now? But they're, you know, just kind of added to the Conference USA as an afterthought because Conference USA is desperate for teams. And I don't think, you know, I don't think, you know, adding teams in that regard does anybody any good unless you're the commissioner of Conference USA just trying to keep your your league alive yeah i mean it's it's definitely a great question but um i don't really think there's too many fcs teams that the ncaa would want to move up because if you move teams up right yeah then what do you do in the fcs you got to pull d2 up mm-hmm. right and then you got to what do you do with the d2 so it just becomes a revolving door of teams moving up and then yeah. eventually it becomes too big and what happens in the 50 years from now what does division three football look like right yeah because if you keep pulling up if you just make it a ladder and you it's because it's you can jump up from division three now i mean like you know that's very you look rare, at you look but, at but you look at st thomas and then take a look at christopher newport like maybe they should be looking at division one because they're dominating division three they're a big school they're basically they're a public school they can't play in the league that makes sense because the odak does not want to invite them in to dominate and have it's similar to jmu and the caa they don't want to be outspent that way, the way CNA, C, uh, CNU would. Um, you know, it might make sense for them to like just jump. I mean, this is, you know, without any inside information about like whether they would ever think about that or not. Um, but yeah, I think you know the move ups are getting a little out of control. FBS is the right size right now. So it should be a very big deal and a very long process to actually make that move. It, it, it is my point. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, with yeah. a lot to prove to make that move. And JMU did that. Um, but JMU did that, but the way it's set up now doesn't allow them to completely maximize the work that they put into it, which which is a shame, even though I understand NCAA making the ruling that they did this week. We're going a little long, <laughs> well, but there was a lot to talk about. But let's, before we wrap it up, let's just hit transfer portal. Um, we talked baseball, or baseball, basketball, and football. Obviously, big, huge one for football. Um, there, there have been a few people enter the portal. The one I think most people obviously care about is um, Isaac Ukwu. Um, shades of you know Diamante Tucker Dorsey last year after spring ball. Um, a you know, a great defensive player who um, has already had a great career at JMU, making the decision to move on, kind of, you know, sensibly to see, hey, can I do it at the at the uh, highest level? It, you know, maybe people would argue that there's not much of a higher level than JMU, but like, you know, that that seems to be it's a trend. I mean, across a lot of sports, it's happened in football now a couple times, women's basketball baseball, softball, people who played their career, their four-year career at JMU, graduated, they've got their degree, JMU is their school, 
they've got this bonus year and it seems like a lot of them what they want to do is like hey i want to go prove to myself that i could have been there all along yeah you know i think you, you can't knock anyone for doing that i mean kiki yeah. jefferson did the same thing women's basketball she's at louisville now yeah isaac Gugu hasn't he's got a lot of offers from various you know auburn was the first school to offer him i mean obviously moving to the fbs jamie will probably see this less because the the uh difference in play won't be yeah. as big you know from fcs jamie diamante tucker dorsey's a little bit different than isaac Gugu, and the fact that yes jamie was moving up but he knew there was no possibility mm-hmm. of playing at bowl no possibility of winning a championship so moved up i think that it is something we want to see more um, I honestly am surprised right now there haven't been any portal additions of um, key players. There has been a few other guys, backups, that haven't played, mm-hmm. really played sparingly. Um, that's You know, you expect to see that in roster management mode where, where you know, coaches sit down and say, this person's done great in practice, but, like, there's just no opportunity for them on the field. And you, you sit them down and say, hey, like, there's no room. Like, not the fact there's no room. It's just, like, you're not going to play. Like, you know, if you want to play, you know here is not the place um so obviously that that happens but yeah isaac Gugu jumping in definitely a big surprise um just because he stayed around the spring seemed really excited about the upcoming year being a leader again and he was a big hole leadership wise on the defensive side of the ball um but you know i think well there's portal closes on sunday could see some guys go in not sure haven't heard any rumors this isn't you know me sitting here saying why well, something's incoming i don't know um, but it's a possibility, especially with this ruling. Um, mm-hmm. I think Kurt Signetti's probably, if there are people coming to him, he's probably in a mode of re-recruiting them, right, and, yeah. and getting them to stay because there is the possibility of going to the bowl. I think this bowl possibility, which has been a thing for every transitioning team, right? If, if you're in your second year of transition and there's not enough bowl spots and you, and you have the you, you have the wins, you can go. I think that that's the big that could be a big recruiting thing that he's using right now to say, hey, like. Let's go do what we just did last year, and you could be rewarded for it. Yeah, um, you know, I think it's also kind of a notable that this is this is across most sports that almost any time Jamie has lost a key player in the portal, somebody that they like, you know, really wanted to keep. It has been the situation where it's somebody who's played their four years, they've graduated, or you know, in Uku's case, played their six years. <laughs> and uh graduated have at least one degree and everything multiple yeah everything else and then and then they move on and if you look at it from jmu's perspective the number of players who have that actual opportunity um we're we're, you know a couple years away from there not being any more covid year players with the extra year so if jmu can keep that trend going um they sent they seem to be in a good spot in the portal era they bring in good players they occasionally lose somebody i mean anton wells is the exception um but i mean you look across basketball basketball football baseball basically any sport most of the key players that they've lost have either been going pro or transferred after graduation uh, which I think, you know, that bodes well for JMU in this, like, era of college sports where there is the the one-time transfer rule. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, Jamie's just uh, it does a good job at retaining its athletes because of what the athletic department, you know, we touched on earlier, how well rounded it is, and you know, Jeff Bourne cares as much as he, you know, about women's golf as he does about football or about women's lacrosse as he does men's soccer. Or, you know, you can compare any sport, and the amount of effort basically the same. Obviously, football and basketball are gonna be a higher level just because the fact of there's more money involved, just TV money and all this other stuff, but like. The effort they put into these smaller sports isn't any different. And I think that, you know, athletes in the football on football or athletes on basketball see that, and you know, they say like, "This is a good place to be." Yeah, uh, we can move over to Atlantic Union Bank Center uh, transfer stuff happening there. Uh, on the women's side, um, they added uh, Shante Barnes, um, started her career at ODU, played at JUCO last year, was close to a double double. Uh, Average at Juco last year. She'll come in, I think, add a little uh, a little depth to this four spot as a you know, JMU loses Claire Neff there, retiring for basketball. Um, I think they're close to adding another transfer who, um, don't know if it's a done deal yet, but it's a name that, you know, the, the biggest JMU basketball fans will probably be familiar with the uh, name uh, if they get that one. Uh, on the men's side, a couple big pickups for them. Uh, since the last time we did this, uh, TJ Bickerstaff um, coming from Boston College, where you know didn't score a ton, averaged about six points a game, but is a really really good rebounder, really good defender in the post, six nine, gives them some size there, and then maybe one of the most intriguing players Jamie's gotten in a long time, uh, Quincy Allen was a four-star top 100 top 75 depending on who you looked at recruit coming out of high school in dc went to colorado and immediately had hip surgery and then didn't play a whole lot this year kind of just got buried um out of the rotation after you know missing his freshman year um you look at his per 40 minute numbers despite not playing well and they're like through the roof um so seems like a guy who has a ton of potential to be a really really good player in the Sun Belt. six eight wing uh gives them even more size and length um which you know mark byington likes on the wings uh just seems like a huge pickup yeah potential is always good right to have yeah. a guy like that coming in from a power five program i think you know it's all about how mike byington can you know make these guys work you know inside both of them especially you know, the guy coming from Colorado, being a top 100, former top 100 recruit, um, you know, it's big. You don't see that somewhat level too much, you know, yeah. grabbing these guys. You see them, if anything, if they leave Power 5, they end up either in the Big East or a league like the Mountain West or the Atlantic 10. Mm-hmm. So it's it's good to see, you know, Jamie recruiting. They have the facilities to do it, and, you know, it's kind of paying off. Now, now let's see the guy who had surgery and then didn't really play much last year, how, you know, either he opens up his game a lot or... You know, is there a little rust period of not playing an actual game? I don't know. Yeah. Um, you, you, you talk about it not happening a ton in the Sun Belt. When it does happen, it's, you know, working those personal connections. You, know, you look at, you know, Louisiana, you know, get a Lafayette native. They get uh, Jordan Brown, whose dad played there. Um, they take full advantage of that, go to the NCAA tournament. JMU, it's the team takeover AAU connection with uh, with uh, Xavier Joyner, Calvin Baker on staff. Um they really worked that one to get this. Um, I think they beat out ODU to get him. So um, good on a, good on a couple levels for the Dukes in that case. Um, a lot of potential. 
should be should be tough to match up with for a lot of teams where they're playing guys like him, Terrence Edwards on the wings, maybe even putting Terrence Edwards as a point guard at times. So really looking forward to seeing um, what they look like maybe when they get into the gym this summer. Uh, but beyond that, um, probably go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about the end of the regular season for lacrosse next week. We'll probably have even more portal news um, for a variety of sports, including football and basketball. Uh, but in the meantime, you've been listening to the Purple and Bull podcast uh, from the Daily News Record. I'm Shane Metlin. With me as always, uh, Noah Fleischman, and thanks for tuning in.